you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy, we're going to be in chapter 3 or in 4. And if you don't have your Bibles, there's one in front of you, in the pew in front of you. It's on page 933, if you'd like to turn there. And by the way, for those of you who might need a larger print, we have those in the back as well. If you ever need a Bible, take one. We got them in the back. We'd love for you to have one or give it to a friend. And there's some other resources for you back there as well. I'm trying to keep stocked at a, a resource table, uh, some devotional things. So maybe on your way out, you can peruse that, especially that Bible, if you want to grab that for somebody or for yourself. Ephesus. Uh, the letter that we're looking at, 1 Timothy, was actually written uh, to Paul. The apostle Paul was writing to a young preacher named Timothy. And at the time, he was in Ephesus. And i got to tell you, by God's grace, I've had the privilege of traveling through a lot of cool places and see a lot of biblical historic places. And Ephesus is really one of the coolest cities you could ever go to because there's so much ruin still there. There's so much you could see. There's so much you can actually kind of have the Bible go from black and white to color. Now, you could see the amphitheater, the theater where they gathered. And there was almost a riot that broke out because Christianity was gaining such traction. And all the silversmiths were so ticked that they're, they're creating idols, their business for Diana. This goddess Diana was getting uh, such a, a bad rap because of the uh, gospel that it was almost a riot. Uh, as you go through the city, you can find out that they actually had running hot and cold water. Blow your mind back then in these terracotta pots going through there. You could see so much of what was there. One of the things I love most is you park and you're making your way into this ancient city. Uh, and they have all of, the, uh, all of the guys trying to sell you some souvenir junk. It is right there, you know. It's all right there as well. So uh, commercialism has taken over Ephesus. And one of my favorite things is I remember walking in. And they got this big sign that says, Genuine fake watches. <laughs> Genuine fake watches. What in the world is that all about? I mean, that is, that is kind of a, the, uh, really in many ways uh, what we're finding today. What is genuine and what is fake? Uh, what is the real deal and what is not? But in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I mean, they had this incredible wonder right there. And when, when Paul was writing in Timothy, he would have known this, this ancient wonder. It was the temple of Artemis, or Diana. And it was an absolute wonder. Uh, there's actually, I'm going to show you a picture of it. This is a rendering of what would have been in Ephesus. It had over a hundred pillars. And guess how high those pillars were? One story, two, three, four five, six stories high. And why did they have to have that many pillars? Well, that roof was all marble. So anybody who was in Ephesus, there were so many cool things. There's a library that's still standing. Some of it is still standing, remnants of that, pieces of this and that. But this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so everybody knew when they read 1 Timothy, everybody knew about this temple. Everybody would know this was an image in their mind that they would see every day. And what Paul is going to do, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he's going to kind of use an imagery like this to tell us truth. He's going to remind us that the church is the household of God, that God doesn't live here, that, that God lives in his church, and God, God dwells with his people, and that we are the church of the living God, not some dead uh, goddess named Diana 
that we are the church of the true, the living God. And it also says the church is to be a pillar or a buttress of the truth. And so it probably uses that thought of pillars. It says, hey, we are, as the church, we're to be a pillar. We're to be a buttress of truth. And we are to be proclaiming the mystery of godliness. Proclaiming this incredible mystery of godliness in Christ Jesus. Well, this morning, as we've been navigating our way through First Timothy, believe it or not, we're in our ninth week. Ninth week in this sermon series entitled, For the Flourishing of the Household of God, for, for Us to Flourish. And as we study through First Timothy, what an amazing book. Uh, one of the 66 letters of the Bible. It's a pastoral epistle, which means it wasn't written for a specific church, although it was written to a person in Ephesus, and that's certainly a lot to do with that church. But it was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to a young pastor, and his name was Timothy. And Paul kind of has his arm around Timothy, and Timothy traveled with Paul. Timothy was used to write some of the New Testament with Paul. I mean, he is a true son in the faith. I mean, these guys are as close as they can be. So you have this incredible letter, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, but inspired by the Holy Spirit that we have to today as well. And it's like a manual for the church. It's like, okay, church, back then and now, this church of the living God, the church of, of God who is, this is our manual, and it's a manual for us to flourish. Really, God wrote this so that the church uh, can uh, properly be run. How do we run? Uh, how do we do what we do uh, for the glory of God, for the household of God? We also, he wrote it, for the world to be thoroughly one, W-O-N-E, right? So it's for two things. One, the church, and it's also for the world. Because why? The church should be on mission. We are here for God's glory. We are here for the glory of our great God, for the good of our neighbor. We are here to play offense. We're here to be ambassadors. Why? Because it even says in this letter that our incredible God desires that all men, all types of men be saved. He desires salvation for a broken world. He desires that his whole earth is filled with his glory. That's why he made it. Uh, and he wants to use us. And he wants of all types of people to come. So what do we learn so far? It's been so important. What does the church need to know? Well, it needs to have sound doctrine. It needs to be able to stand on truth, not get blown away by this thought or that thought. We got to stand on God's word. We got to be unapologetic. What is sound doctrine? Not just my opinion, your opinion. What is God's opinion? And what does he tell us to do? But with that sound doctrine, it's so important that we have abounding grace. If we just have sound doctrine and not abounding grace, we become edgy. We become judgmental. We become kind of greater than everybody else and look down at them. But he reminds us that we need abounding grace. And Paul says that, listen, I'm the chief of sinners. And God's lavishing grace rescues us. We need to be fighting the good fight, not just fighting each other or other denominations or fighting over little things. We've got to make sure that we fight the good fight for lost souls and for the glory of God. We need the primacy of prayer. This is, this is God's house. We should be praying, not just the leaders, but all of us. We need to understand there's biblical gender roles when it comes to worship of male and female and how that reflects our God. And that's not really politically correct not right now. But we also have looked the last two weeks we need godly leadership, godly elders, godly deacons and deaconesses. And this morning, he's going to kind of turn the corner. We're right, we're right at the crossroads. We're right, we're right at the high water mark. He says, again, this is why I wrote this. But he's going to start talking about godliness. We are to pursue godliness. That's next week. But this week we're going to talk about this pillar of truth, 
that which we are to hold up, uh, and that the mystery of godliness in which we are to proclaim. And so uh, what we're going to do is that uh, we're going to look at a few things this morning. Uh, the church needs to be preaching the gospel, and we had to have men and women who are devoted to truth and godliness. We're going to look at the pillar of truth, the mystery of godliness. It's choking me up already. Um, and then under the mystery of godliness, we have a few things. The mystery of Christ, losing by adding and receiving with thanksgiving. So let's jump into God's word. Uh, we're going to pick up just where we left off last week in chapter 3, verse 14, uh, right after he talks about the leadership of the church. And we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 5. And by the way, remember in the original, uh, this was a letter. There was no, um, you know, there was no chapter breaks. There were no verses. I mean, this is read as one letter. Uh, this is how it helps us to kind of be able to figure out uh, how to, to preach and parse it. But anyway, let's hear God's word, chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, wow, this is like, here's the point. If I, uh, if, if I'm writing these things, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is going to be coming after this is either a creed or a hymn that the early church would recite or sing. And here's what it says. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for this truth before us that came inspired by your spirit through the pen of the apostle Paul to Timothy in a place called Ephesus. But God, this is a manual for your church here at King's Chapel. And we need this truth. We need it desperately today. Oh God, would you speak through a broken sinner like me? God, would you give us ears to hear your voice, minds to understand your word, that hearts that would embrace your truth and feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name. Father, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion, may those things fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, this mystery of godliness in Christ, would you use those things to build us up in truth? Would you use those things to make us more like your son, our Savior? And in, it is in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see with this is it says, okay, the church... We are to be the pillar of truth. We are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
Interesting pillar, you could probably see a buttress. It's, it's usually an architectural term that's used to, to support a foundation or a structure. But I also love this phrase of a buttress. It is a source of defense or support. And so it's saying, Paul is saying, here we are, the church, that we should be a pillar. We should be a pillar of truth. We should be a defender of truth. We should be an absolute support of truth. That is where we are to be. And again, a picture that, that incredible image of what they were able to see. They were able to have a great mind picture right away. Hey, the church, be a pillar of truth. Truth should be as the church should be the foundation in which we build upon. That is, that is our core. Now remember, uh, truth comes from God. It's not determined by the church. Truth comes from God through his word. He is the revealer of truth. He is the source of truth. We are, Jesus Christ is the foundation of truth. That's the foundation on which we build. It's not like we're the discoverers of what's true and what's not. We are the discoverers who are, go to God's word and say, reveal to us what is true. And when we know what is true, that is to be, the truth is to be the foundation in which we build upon. Remember, the whole premise in 1 Timothy was this. False teachers had come in. They'd come in with some strange doctrine. And they were teaching things that didn't have to do with the gospel. They were talking about these weird myths and endless genealogies. They were getting people all confused and away from Jesus, the, the rock and, the, and the, the foundation of our souls uh, in Christ Jesus. And he's saying, make, make sure that you are building on the foundation of truth. That is what we're to have as a pillar. But it's more than that. Truth is what the church is to lift high. Just think about that six-story pillar in Ephesus, lifting high that roof, that incredible marble roof. What we are to be is those who lift high the truth, not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. You as an ambassador, lifting high the truth of God, his word and scripture. Let me just, we all know what we're living in, right? We all know that we live in a pluralistic society that says your truth is your truth. Let me figure out my truth that wants to obliterate truth as something that comes from God. It's something that you determine. But here's what God says. Church, build on the truth. Don't lose its foundation. Be a pillar. Be a buttress. But more than that, lift it high. Lift it high. When you do, you'll, you'll be criticized. When you do, you'll be made fun of. When you do, you'll be seen as, as lacking uh, some cultural nuances that you should have. But the truth, that's who we are. It's the church of the living God. It's a household of God. It's God's truth that we stand on, and it's God's truth that we lift high. How do we lift high God's truth? We confess the mystery of godliness. This is really, it's kind of like, what is the mystery of godliness? We've got to unpack this. Because uh, we, li uh, lifting high the truth and confessing the mystery of godliness is essentially preaching the good news of the gospel. It's essentially preaching the good news of what God has done for us. Let me hit pause for a minute, interject something that everybody needs to hear. I'm going to start over. Anybody mind? <laughs> uh, from the top. Play it again, Sam. You know, um, for those of you who missed it online. <laughs> so we're talking about this mystery of godliness, and it's found in this ancient creed, and it starts off with this mystery of Christ. And the mystery of Christ is that he was manifested in the flesh. This is God eternal, God almighty, who all of a sudden became man. This is the uncreated one who became created. 
This is the one who's born of a virgin. This is the one who would come and walk among us, fully man, fully God. That is manifested in the flesh. But it's more than that. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the triune God, would rest upon him and would declare that Jesus is the real deal. He would empower him. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit in two clear moments of his earthly life. One was at his baptism. At his baptism in in Matthew chapter 3, it's recorded for us in all the synoptic gospels and in the gospel of John. But in the gospel of Matthew, verses 16 through 17, as Jesus was coming up out of the waters of baptism, it would say that the, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and it rested upon him. Why? It was saying, this is the real Savior. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is proof that Jesus is the one. The Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him. God has set him apart. But then the father, who could no longer contain his love for his son, he said, that's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one the Spirit rests on. This is the real one. He is vindicated by the Spirit. But not just at his life, it's at his resurrection. At his resurrection, uh, Jesus also was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the way that, that Paul is going to start the epistle to the Romans, the letter to the Romans. Let me read to you Romans 1. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Okay, that Jesus was promised. Here he's going to come. He promised the Messiah. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, fully man, and was declared to be the son of God, fully God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was vindicated by the spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and said, this is my uh, true Messiah. Uh, the Father is one who he loves. Uh, it was seen he was resurrected by the power of the Spirit, saying this is the Son of God. So he, this mystery of Christ manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. And then he was, uh, it says, seen by angels. When he was born, angels appeared in the sky. They put on a spontaneous concert. Uh, Luke chapter 2 tells us about that, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men. Uh, this is such good news that uh, angels came to see that God became man and dwelt among us. They couldn't keep silent. Man, I would love to have heard that chorus. I've been to Bethlehem. would love to hear those voices. I'd love to see the heavenly host show up and sing his presence. He was seen by angels at his birth. He was seen by angels at his death. They were there at the empty tomb. They had an act, I love it. The angel of the Lord, it says, sat on top of the rock that was rolled away, the stone that was rolled away. Do you know what happens when you sit on top of a rock that's rolled away? Does anybody have an older sibling that used to tickle you and sit on you? Did anybody have somebody who sat on you and just like in triumph over you? I got some people waving their hands here with a passion. Wasn't it, a, what, were, what were they doing? They were sitting on you in triumph. It was a terrible feeling. If that was you, repent right now, okay? That was the wrong thing you did. <laughs> Um, but the angel of the Lord sat on top of that stone to say victory. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And he is alive. And because he is alive, our sins are forgiven and we have been set free. Angels. He's seen by angels. And then in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it talks about Jesus. 
And uh, if I didn't have my hands full, I'd turn there. Um, but it says this. It's amazing. First Peter, it says that angels long to peer into this salvation. Angels saw, wow, these created beings saw Jesus, the uncreated one, became man to come rescue us. He saw him, they saw Jesus live for us, die for us, and be resurrected. They went back and they looked through all of Scripture. He said, man, we long to see. This is incredible. Look what God has done. Angels, seen by angels, they long to look into the mystery. Proclaimed among the nations, uh, the, the angels would say, good news of great joy. And guess who it's for? All people. I love that. Good news of great joy for all people is proclaimed at the very beginning of his birth. And guess what Jesus says at the end of his resurrection? By the way, I want you to go. You're my church. I want you to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation, all nations. I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach them. I want you to baptize them. I want to be followers of me. You see, Jesus has been proclaimed throughout all the nations. He needs to be believed on in the world. Um, the book of Acts is going to remind us uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon us so we can be his uh, witnesses, disciples. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have the everlasting life. And then he, and then he says to the church, listen, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth because the nations need to know the mysteries of Jesus. This is not just for the Jew. This is for the Gentile. This is not just a national savior. This is not just about one group of people. This is for all people. This is the incredible mystery of, of, of godliness, um, this mystery of Christ. And lastly, he was taken up to glory. What does it mean that he was taken up to glory? Well, he was resurrected. And you know, the resurrection means this to us. The sacrifice was accepted. How many of you write checks anymore? Anybody write a check? Anybody still have a checkbook? Welcome, because you're old, like me, right? No pointing fingers. <laughs> but if you write a check, all right, let's, 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 let's get modern. How do we know if your Venmo account went through? All right, I Venmoed you money. How do I know that it worked? How do I know it worked? Anybody know? How does your Venmo work? How do you know that it worked? The money comes out of your account, right? How do we know that Christ sacrificed worked. The father withdrew the funds. The son was taken away. And not only that, death was defeated. There's no more sacrifice needed for us. We're forgiven. We're free. We're loved. And that's some ridiculously good news. He was taken up to glory, but he's coming back. You see, the mystery of godliness is found in Christ Jesus. The mystery of godliness is not found in what you do. The mystery of godliness is found in what he has done. It's found in his life, righteous life, fulfilling the law, magnifying it, in his atoning death, becoming sin for us, and in his resurrection. In the gospel, we receive the righteousness of God by faith, and that is such an incredible gift. But then he turns the corner and he says, now listen, there's some of you who've come along the way, and they're demonic. They're, they're hypocrites. I mean, he, you dig into this. He's like, some of you have come along, and these demonic, terrible teachers are teaching you that you could become godly because of Jesus and a few other things. And it basically, they're saying this. It's losing by adding. If we add anything on to the gospel equation, 
the gospel is this. We are loved and accepted because of Christ Jesus plus nothing. If we add you got to be saved and be then, you know, do this or that, well, it's actually taking away. Adding to what Jesus has done's requirement for salvation and godliness is a subtraction. It's interesting because next week we're going to look at we got to be pursuing godliness, but we got to be careful we do it the, the right way. Bad theology, they were called deceitful spirits, demonic teachings. With bad teachers, they were insincere liars with seer consciences, and they had some bad teachings. And you know what the bad teachings were? You're thinking, oh, my gosh, how bad is this going to be? They're demonic. How bad is this going to be? They're, they're hypocritical liars. They said you shouldn't marry. And by the way, you should abstain from some certain foods. And I don't know about you, but first blush is like, really? That's demonic? I mean, that's just so mad. I mean, that, what, what, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, really what they were doing is they were trying to add on to the gospel and godliness. You are not made godly because you're married or not married. You are not made godly because of what you put in your mouth. You're made godly because of Christ Jesus in your heart. So he says we are to be receiving all of God's good creation with thanksgiving. I love this. What he's basically doing is this. He's taking us back to the beginning. He mentions creation. In the very beginning of creation, what did you have? You had marriage that God declared was good. And you had all the foods, all the fruit that God declared was good. All of it except for one. And he says, enjoy it. What does this mean? God wants us to love the life he's given to us right now. If you're single, enjoy your singleness in a God-honoring way. If you're married, enjoy your marriage in a God-honoring way. If you enjoy food, drink in a God-honoring way, enjoy it. I mean, enjoy life. I mean, he, he's not this killjoy. He created, he says, good. Um, and, you know, sometimes we live our lives saying, oh, no, I got I to gotta be all mad about myself. I, gotta, I can't really enjoy life and all that it has to offer. If you go to the beach and you're blown away by the waves, say, praise God. If you go up the mountains and you can't get over how what God has created, say, praise God. If you look at your spouse and your, your breath is taken away, say, praise God. The beauty of your kids, the beauty of a joy on a golf course, the beauty of a nice sizzling steak with blue cheese on it, medium rare, and some incredible good wine, say, praise God. You know, it's just incredible. It's good. And we got to be careful that we don't think we're holy by what we abstain from. And what has our world done? You see, they start saying you shouldn't get married. Man, you don't get married. We're in trouble. Not that, but marriage is not for everybody. Scripture says that. But our world starts changing what it means. It starts changing what we're doing. We are made godly because of God's grace in the work of Christ Jesus. If we try to add to the equation something of our own, it's subtracting. And we need to receive all that God has given us with thankful, grateful hearts. Say, thank you. It's kind of amazing. It's made holy through prayer. Now, we also got to understand this, and I'm going to close, is that all of creation has been affected by the fall. So when he says everything is good, you've got to receive it, we've got we to say, okay, how has the fall affected this? How has the fall affected good wine? Well, it makes us so addicted to it, we can't stop. If something good becomes something necessary, it's an idol, it's not good. This is, doesn't give us license to do anything. Well, God said it's good. God's good creation. I'm doing it. I'm partaking. Yeah, enjoy marriage. Enjoy uh, the intimacy of a spouse in marriage, but not outside. 
So he's going to make sure that we, we uh, enjoy God's blessing in a way that we receive God's blessing, do it in a way that honors him for the glory of our great God and for the good of our neighbor. That is what we're supposed to do, receive it. King's Chapel, we need to build our church. We are a pillar of truth. We need to lift high the truth. And we got to confess the mystery of godliness in Christ Jesus today and forever. Amen.